pick a uh, scripture passage and we work our way through it and we really try to say, okay, what does this mean? And so we, we, we are here, RUF is here primarily for uh, both Christians and non-Christians. We want to look at the Bible, take its claims seriously and see what impact and what relevance does this have for our lives together. So that's what we do each week. And one of the things that we are doing this particular semester is we are working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, which has um, been awesome. <laughs> and uh, it's been challenging. It's been a great book. Um, but one of the reasons why we work through particular books of the Bible here at RUF is, that so, is so that you actually get to interact with what the Bible is really about. I don't, do, I don't get to just sit up here and ride whatever hobby horse issue I want to ride, but we actually work our way through a particular book. And so... I, you, you can't avoid, you don't have the option of avoiding hard passages. And tonight, I think we come to a hard passage. And frankly, I don't want to preach it. <laughs> frankly, I don't want to do it. I was talking to Catherine this morning. I was like, I wish I didn't have to do this one. But because we're working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, here we are at chapter 7. This is just sort of the next installment of where we are. So I'm going to read it. And we're going to pray for God's help. And then we're going to jump in and look at it. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is God's word. Let me pray for us and then we'll, then we'll jump in. <clears throat> uh, Father, we ask for your uh, help now as we turn our attention to your word. We know that we have no hope of understanding what this passage means apart from your help. So we would pray, Holy Spirit... Would you come and would you join us even right now and open up our eyes so that we would be able to see the beauty of the gospel and see it again. Some, for some of us, maybe the first time. For some of us, maybe the five millionth time. But we pray that you would be kind to do that and to meet us here. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love the band, The Weepies. And if you're familiar with the band, The Weepies, then um, you know that they have this song called The Simple Life which is this great song about retreating from sort of the chaotic, fast-paced city life of the world and, and coming into sort of a more elemental, simple life in the country. And one of the lyrics of that song stood out to me. And, and, and here it is. Let me just read it. I know it doesn't have the same impact of actually hearing the song, but here's the lyrics. It says, Is it enough to write a song and sing it to the birds? They'd hear just the tune and not understand my love for words. You think about this image, this person singing this really heartfelt song to a bird, and of course the bird can't really understand the weight of the lyrics. All it can really you know, pick up on is the actual tune, because the bird doesn't understand English. And so you know, I, I thought about this as an interesting picture. This is an interesting metaphor or, or a parable of sorts, in the sense that I mean, picture God singing to us this song that we really all appreciate the tune of. We really, we really like the melody. It's beautiful to us. But that we, we miss, a lot of times, the, the rich weightiness of the actual lyrics of the song. You're like, okay, what song are you, what song are you talking about? And this is the song, particularly, of God's love, of the way that God loves his people. So we talk about that a lot. We talk about that at church. We, you know, we talk about it in our little Christian communities or whatever. God is love. You know, God loves people. You know, whatever. But I think our understanding of God's love tends to grow fairly cliche after a while. 
And it can tend to be very shallow and one-dimensional. We talk about God's love a lot. But what I want you to see tonight is that, and what I want, and my, my prayer and my hope tonight is that as we really reflect and meditate on God's love, that it will actually, will catch the richness of the actual lyrics of the song. And that it would be rich and weighty and, and robust, and, and God's love would take on a new dimension to us, and not just some sort of shallow, sentimental thing that we like to talk about in Christian circles. However, the way to do that, the way forward, is of course, as you probably picked up on in this passage, is to navigate through some particularly turbulent waters. Because tonight, our passage raises the issue in the, in the biblical notion of election, of God actually choosing his people, that, that, that God chooses his people before and, and, and gives them the ability to choose him. That in other words, we didn't even have the ability to choose God unless God first chose us. And this is really turbulent. This is, a, this is a hard pill to swallow in the Bible. But what I want to do as we navigate these waters is to look at this topic, is to look at this passage under three basic headings. One, the reality of God's electing love. Two, the, the reason for God's electing love. And three, the relevance of it. Why does it even matter? Why are we even talking about it? So the, the, the um, uh, reality, the reason, and the relevance. So... Let's talk about the reality of it. Because I really do think that the Bible assumes the reality that God does actually elect and choose the people that he, he loves. Now let me just say from the beginning that I'm not naive. And I know how unbelievably challenging this can be. Because I've sat in your shoes before where I've heard somebody talk about this and I know I disagree with it and I know I didn't buy it. And I know this may be some of you tonight and that's okay. Because this really is counterintuitive and this is counter what a lot of you probably grew up with or, or counter what a lot of you uh, just may be thinking. And I certainly think this is probably foreign spiritually to everybody. I don't think anybody wants to really believe that this is true. So let's just, let me just start there and, and be sensitive to the fact that I know some of you are probably going to have a hard time with this, and you probably should. This is a hard thing. This is a big and weighty and important thing. But it's in the Bible, so we've got to talk about it. So here we are. Let's just start right here. Let's begin with our passage, verse 6. Let me read it again. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. You see, the, the idea here is that of all the people in the world, out of all the different ethnic options, God comes to the people of Israel and says, I want y'all to be my people. Notice that the order isn't the people of Israel look at Yahweh, look at the God of the Bible and say, we want you to be our God. It's the other way around. God initiates the relationship and says, I want y'all. I'm going to come to y'all and I'm going to choose you. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you hear about the people of Israel being the chosen people of God. And you, you probably have heard about this. But some of you are probably like, well, that's just what they did in the Old Testament. God picked a racial group, the Jewish people, and that's, that's kind of how he did it back then. But now, in the New Testament and in the current age, it's no longer racial. The church is not Jews only. It is Jews and Gentiles. You don't have to be ethnically chosen to be in the church today. And if you think that, you would be right. It is not, God does not choose people along racial, racial lines anymore. But here's the thing. In the New Testament... It talks about the church. It talks about the newly constituted people of God, the, the new Israel in the same language, the same categories. So let me, uh, let me just throw out a couple of verses here. You can, you can jot them down and, and check them out later. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. You get to Ephesians 1. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. 
And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure with his pleasure and will. And then you jump to verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So the same language. You still see this choosing language of God coming to the, the church and saying, I'm choosing you, and I've chosen you before the foundation of the world. One last verse. Uh, John six forty four. Here's what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, the, you, see the, you see what's being communicated there? No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father has first already enabled him to, to come to me. It's the Father's election of his people that's what gives the people the ability to actually come to him. And so this is what the reality of the, the, the biblical notion of election is, is that we don't have the ability to come to God unless God first comes to us and opens up our hearts and gives us the ability and enables us to actually choose him. This is sort of the reality. This is, this is the idea of the Bible that we see all kind of throughout. So let me just pause here and identify the fact that this is what you want. If you actually look in your heart, you want to be chosen in this way. Everybody in this room, maybe not you know, theologically, spiritually, but think about it along these terms. Girls, you want... <laughs> girls only. <laughs> you want the guy that you like to choose you. I mean, you have a guy that you like or you have a particular, you know, your eye on somebody and you want that guy to choose you. You want him to, to prize after you in that way. This is normal. Guys, you want the same thing. There are girls that you have your eye on that you want them to choose you out of every other guy, right? Whoever that is for you, every one of us wants to be prized after and to be chosen and to be selected and wanted like this. And the Bible, I think, affirms and, and recognizes the reality of your, your heart and says God does this too. God actually prizes after and chooses and pursues his people. So, okay, here's the, here's the second question. Why? <laughs> Even if you grant that this is true, biblically, what is God's reason for doing this? I mean, is he up there blindfolded just sort of throwing darts at people? What is his reason for selecting certain people, for choosing certain people? Well, let me... Let me um, Again, say that our, our, our text, I think, helps us navigate that question. And so what I want to do is I want to answer the question first, what the reason is not, and then what the reason actually is. Because I think this is where our passage goes. So, okay, what the reason is not. A lot of people have looked at this question, why does God choose people? And they have said that the reason God chooses people is based off of their goodness. He looks at certain people and says, I'm going to choose the good people, the, the gentle people, the kind people, the people who I know are going to be good and effective Christians for me. You know, it's kind of like when you're at the grocery store and, and you're, you're looking at the apples and you kind of glaze over the busted brown, you know, bruised ones and you go after the, the nice, shiny, plump ones. We think, okay, maybe this is, what, this is what God is doing. Well, let's see. What does the text say? Verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. The Lord looks at the people of Israel and says, I didn't choose you because you were, you were numerous. You were this big, imposing group of people. Because back then, you know, the, the merits of a nation, the, the merits of a city, the merits of a town were largely based off of how big the place was. I mean, think about a big, imposing city is much bigger and much better 
than some little dinky, you know, run-down village out in the country. And this is the same basic idea. He is saying, you didn't have any merit that prompted me to want to choose you. It wasn't like you were this big old nation that attracted my attention. It's like, I got to choose them. In fact, what does he say? He goes on, for, this is verse 7, for you are the fewest of all peoples. You are actually the, the, the most rinkiest, dinkiest groups of all peoples. <laughs> Don't think that you were all that because you weren't. There was nothing about you, no merit in you, nothing that was attractive about you that prompted me to want to love you, to make me want to choose you. If you, if you look at um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 9, which is obviously just two chapters later, God is reiterating the same basic idea. And he says, he says this three different times. Hey, you're getting ready to go in to in, inherit the promised land. And remember, the reason you're going in there and the reason I've chosen you is not because you're righteous. And he says, oh, by the way, if you think that you're going in there because you're righteous, it's not because you're righteous. <laughs> and he says, I know I've given you this land. Heads up. It's not because you are righteous. Three times, it's like, okay, we get the point. It's not because we are righteous. And this is the basic point. Overall, through the Bible, over and over and over and over, God says, I do not choose you because you were attractive, because you were meritorious, because something about you prompted me to love you. I mean, look, at, look, look back at verse 6 real quick. I want you to see the word order here. It says that, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, what does holy mean? It's a nice... Christian buzzword we like to throw around that probably a lot of people have no idea what that means. <laughs> Holy really means to be separate, to be, to be distinct, to be uh, isolated from the rest of the group. And notice what he says. He says, uh, uh, you are holy because the Lord chose you, not I chose you because you are holy. You, know, you see what he's saying? You, you are not distinct. You are not separate. And therefore, that's what prompted me to want to choose you. Actually, I'm going to choose you. And that's the thing that's going to make you holy. That's the thing that's going to make you distinct. That's the thing that's going to make you separated and, and unique from the rest of the world. So the point is, God does not choose his people because of any goodness or merit in us. But okay, let's go back to the question. Well, okay, what's the reason? Why? Well, some people have said, okay, here's how God does it. He looks down the corridor of time because he knows the future. And he knows who is going to believe in him. He knows who is going to exercise some form of faith, and those are the people he chooses. He knows who is going to exercise faith and and belief, and so he says, okay, those are my people. You may have heard this. You You may think this. But I want you to see the problem with this. Because if it's true that God does not choose on any basis in us. All that this view is making is is saying your your faith is the basis upon which God chooses you. And God chooses us apart from any basis in us. Let me just look at um, uh, one verse. This is Acts chapter 13, 48, which kind of speaks to this. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, meaning the gospel, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and honored the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see the word order there? All, for eternal, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Not all who believed were then appointed for eternal life. It was their appointment. It was their election. It was God's choosing them that enabled them to believe in the first place. Faith is not the grounds of our election. Faith is the evidence of it. So, okay, that can't be it either. Uh, all throughout the Bible we see there is no basis in us for our election. So, okay, if that's, if that's what the reason is not, what is the reason? Why does God choose certain people? Why does God choose his people? Well, here we go. L- look, look at verse 7 again with me. I want you to see something. This is fascinating. This is really interesting. Verse 7, it says, uh, here's the negative reason. 
The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more, more numerous than other peoples, for you're the fewest of all peoples. Okay, that's the negative reason. So what's the positive reason why God loves us? But it was because the Lord loved you. Okay? So this is saying basically, God doesn't love you because of X, Y, and Z. He loves you because he loves you. You're thinking, okay, God's speaking in circles here. This is weird. But what I want you to see is that this is actually really good news. And this is the most liberating news that you can hear. The fact that God loves us because he loves us. Let me... um, let me try and clarify this. I heard an illustration by a seminary professor named Ed Clowney. He told a, a, an illustration basically like this. Picture yourself, you're seven, you're eight years old, you're sitting on the couch with uh, your dad, and he's got his arm around you, and y'all are being, uh, you know, cute with each other. And uh, <laughs> your dad says, he looks at you and he says, son, daughter, I love you. And let's just say, for whatever reason, that day you were feeling particularly insecure and so you look up at your dad and you look in his eyes and you say why daddy why do you love me and he looks down at you and he says I love you because you are the fastest kid on the soccer team (laughs) (laughs) or he says I love you because you are at the top of your class academically he gave a reason right what's wrong with that of course we know something is wrong with that because as soon as he says, the reason I love you is because of X and I centralize all of my love for you into this reason, now the pressure is on for you to live up to that reason because as soon as I stop being at the top of my class academically or at the top of the team athletically, then I theoretically risk losing your love. And so now all of the pressure is on for me to live up and to sustain my performance if that is the real reason why you love me. But in the Bible, the gospel is is that God's grace, God's love, is not merited, it is not earned by us. It is generated specifically by Him. It is graciously dispensed out of something not based in us, but out of something based in Him. This spontaneous, covenantal thing that God does where He says, I just love because I love. And this frees us and liberates us from these prisons of performance to have to live up to some standard. You see how good news this is? Here's where one commentary put it, that we begin to see the inexplicable, self-motivated love of God. Inexplicable. Why me? I don't know. It's not based on anything in me. It's based on something in him. And I don't know why, but he's got, he's got, he's got reasons for it. And no, I don't know what the reason is. I know he's got good reasons. If you're tracking with me, I have been intentionally um, trying to unpack the reality and show the reason behind uh, this biblical idea. And I know that this has been extremely teachy and heavy, and I know that this is probably raising more questions than it is actually answering them, but that's just kind of par for the course when you're talking about issues like this that are this weighty and that are this big and this important. So here's the last question. Why is this relevant? <laughs> Why are we talking about this? Why does this matter? Can't we just sort of throw it up and say, uh, there's not going to be an answer. Let's not waste our time fighting about it. What actual practical reality and, and implications does this have in our, in our lives? And I want to suggest that this has radical implications into your life. And I want to list two. That once you really understand the reality of God's electing love, that this produces two things in, t- in you. Profound humility and profound security. And at the same exact time. How in the world is that possible? L- let me just flesh out both of these and, and put them together and then we'll conclude here. Uh, humility. Some of you may be looking and being like, okay, 
even though this, this may make sense biblically, you Christians think you're the chosen ones? How arrogant. How unbelievably arrogant to think that God has chosen you. But here's the thing. If you actually understand this and understand what this is claiming and what the Bible is about, and this makes you arrogant, you have not understood it at all. Because this should make us the most humble people on the planet. Because if you believe this, you have to admit that there is no moral superiority in me over anybody else. This doctrine, this biblical idea, flattens all of humanity and gives you no more moral leverage than anybody. And I mean anybody. Pedophiles. Terrorists. We don't have the ability to look down on other people because we are saved purely by God's grace and God's grace alone. And therefore, that gives us no grounds to be superior to anyone. Again, let me just illustrate this. I heard a story uh, by Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian pastor up in New York. And uh, you've heard me quote him a lot because he's one of my personal heroes. Uh, but he tells this story. And he says, when I, he, he was in seminary learning about this idea about election, the, the biblical idea about election. And obviously, there was this woman in the class who was really upset about it. And so she raises her hand and says, you know, I disagree with this. This is crazy. This totally doesn't make any sense. I believe in free will. What's the deal with, with, with God choosing people? That is so unfair. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And he says the seminary professor did something that was really interesting. He, you know, he looked at her and he said, uh, you know what, you're right. If you buy into this idea, there are some problems with it. They are, there are some real challenging problems with it. However, if you deny this, there are even bigger problems. And she's like, Okay, what do you mean by that? And he says, do you have a roommate? And she said, yeah. And, she said, and he said, is your roommate a Christian? And she said, no. And so the, the seminary professor goes, okay, uh, why do you believe and your roommate doesn't? And she goes, well, uh, because I accepted Christ and my roommate didn't. And, she, and he said, yes, correct, right. But why did you accept Christ and your roommate didn't? And she goes, uh, well, because I repented of my sins and my roommate wouldn't. He said, right, absolutely right. But why did you repent of your sins and your roommate didn't? And she said, uh, because I was willing to admit that I was a sinner and she, my roommate wasn't. And the professor goes, right, absolutely right. But why were you willing to admit that you're a sinner and your roommate wasn't? I mean, you see what he's saying. He's getting at this point and saying, what is the real difference between you and your roommate? Because if the difference between you and your roommate is completely by God's grace, and it is the difference is grounded in God and not in something that you have done, then this doesn't give you any right to look down on your roommate anymore and to disdain her and to be impatient with her because she can't believe and she can't muster up the willpower like you did. But if the difference between you and your roommate is really because you were maybe a little bit more spiritually savvy, you had a little bit more intellectual ability, you were maybe a little bit more humbler, a little bit more uh, filled with integrity, then this really does give you the right to look down on her. This really does give you the, the right to have something that will disdain her. And so what he's saying is that if you buy into this, sure, there are problems with it, but they're all intellectual. They're all philosophical problems. But if you deny this, then all of the problems in your life are practical and personal and cultural and spiritual because this little advantage that you have over other people that don't believe like you do is going to flesh itself out in all kinds of nasty ways in your life. And you will really look down on other people and get frustrated with people because they didn't believe like you did because they didn't summon up the willpower like you did. But if the difference between you and everybody else is purely by God's grace, and this makes you the most humble people on the planet, that I have no right to look down on other people anymore. This humbles you to the ground. 
But the second thing it does is this gives you profound security and confidence. Absolute security. Here's where I get this from. Verse 8. Let me read it again. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God kept the oath that he, has, that he made. He promised the people of Israel. He made a covenant with them. and said, I'm gonna, you are my people and I'm going to redeem you. And so how did he demonstrate his love? By an action of grace. He kept his promise by breaking into time and space and liberating his people from Egypt. Can you imagine what it felt like for an Israelite to move out of the land of Egypt knowing that the king of the universe is on your side and is actually entering into the world to do something for you? This gives you all the confidence and all the security as you move out into the world. And you think, okay, well, that's really nice for the Israelites. (laughs) What about for me? How do I know that God is for me like this? How do I know that God loves me like he loved the Israelites? Here's the answer. You get to the New Testament You look at 1 John 4, 4, 4, 9 through 10, and here's what it says. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is prompted not by our ability to love him. God's choosing us is not by our ability, is not by us being choosable. It is purely prompted by his love for his people. And when you see this, when he sends his son and says, I'm going to live the perfect life for you and in your place, and I'm going to die the criminal's death for you and in your place, then you know, when you look at the cross, then you know, God loves me like this. And this is what gives you all the security and the confidence in the world to move out, knowing, okay, the king of the universe is on my side. He is for me, and this gives you the security. So, okay, put these two things together, humility and security. How does this work? If your identity is not grounded on the gospel of grace alone, then you are building your identity upon some achievement that you are, that you are doing yourself. There is some difference between you and another person, either it's your athletic ability or your ability to get grades or your looks or whatever, and this is what gives you the ability uh, to have an identity apart from God. But if you are doing that, then this only goes in one of two extremes. This can either make you humble or secure, but not both. Because if you're failing to live up to your standards, if you didn't get the grade, if you didn't get to ambassadors, if you didn't get the guy that you wanted, if you didn't get the girl that you wanted, if you didn't live up to your standards, then you are crushed and you are humbled and you are filled with guilt. And this humbles you and you throw pity parties for yourself. And then you send out Evites for all of your friends to come. (laughs) You're humbled. But... If you live up to those standards and you do get the grade or you do get into ambassadors or you do get the girl or whatever, then you're filled with security and you're filled with confidence and you're filled with happiness. It's only one or the other. You are, filled, you are fluctuating back and forth. So you're either filled with self-pity or you are filled with self-righteousness. Only the gospel humbles you because you are saved by God's grace alone and not on anything that you have done or will do or can do. And this humbles you and yet at the same time makes you confident and makes you secure because God accepts you and God loves you because of what Jesus has done. What other religion, what other philosophy, what other worldview produces people like this where you are humble and yet not filled with self-pity and confident and secure and not filled with self-righteousness? There is none. It is only the gospel. Only the gospel can do it. Let me wrap up here because I know I haven't answered every question that 
you have on this, and that's okay. And I know that even more questions have probably popped up along the way, and those are good and those are important questions. What about free will? Why preach the gospel if God's just choosing people? Isn't this unfair? Those are really important questions. And what I would love to do is, is uh, it, if you want to grab coffee, hang out, grab lunch, I'd love to sit down and talk to you and process through those questions because those are really big and those are really important, and I don't want to minimize those. But let me just try and conclude with, with answering one last question here, is how do I know God has chosen me? If this is true, how do I know? How can I be sure that God has chosen me? And here's how you know. If when you hear the gospel, and when you hear about Jesus, if, does your heart warm towards him? Is Jesus attractive to you, and you actually want him? You, you want this to be true. When you hear about this, do you say, yes, I, I want that. I, I don't know how this works out. I don't know what I think about all this, but I know that I want him. If that is you, and if that's what your heart is doing, then God has chosen you. Because the, the biblical idea is that you couldn't have felt those things. You couldn't be attracted to Jesus unless he has first come to you. And so my hope and my prayer is that if you have not responded to God's initiative, that tonight, maybe for the first time, you would actually step out in faith and say, okay, I want Jesus, and I'm going to put my faith and my trust in him. Even though I don't know how all this works, and this is crazy, and this raises a whole bunch of questions, I'm going to respond because I want Jesus. Or maybe if, if, if you do recognize yourself as a Christian and say, okay, yeah, I, I believe this. I have responded to Jesus' initiative in my life. I really do hope that, hope that God's love for you really will become more three-dimensional and robust and rich. And it wouldn't be something that's just sweet and sentimental and thrown around, but that you would know that God loves his people in a real and intense and concrete way. So much so that he came after them to die on the cross, for his son to die on the cross. So as we hear this love song of, 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 of God singing to us, uh, you know, I, I really do hope that we would not just grab a hold of the melody and the, be- and, and the beauty of, of, the, of the actual, you know, song, but that we would grab a hold of the lyrics as well, and that these lyrics would really just, that they would change us, and that they would make us the people that the Bible says we, that we can be and that we should be, unbelievably humble <laughs> and unbelievably secure at the same time, because only the gospel can do this. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, you know that this, is, that this is hard. This is a big pill to swallow. This is hard. And I know that there are folks in here struggling. And, and that, is, that is good and right because this is hard. And um, I think, uh, I know that it's hard for myself too. And I pray that uh, you would give us grace and that you would give us help as we process some of these big things. And I pray that the result of it would not be a minimizing of your love, but a, a, a magnifying of it. That we would see that you love your people in a radical way, so much that you sent your son to die in their place. Would that change us? Would that um, radically transform our identities? Because you know that we need it. And I pray that you would be kind to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.